Hello, everyone. My name is Cameron Wild, and I'm 12 years old. This is my dad, Doug, my mom, Claire, and my brother, Spencer. And we have been attending TCC since August of 2012. We'll be reading from the New International Version, Exodus 20, 14, and Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. Matthew 5, 27 to 30, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Wild Family. I did the math, they've been here 11 years. So good. And, and you know what's interesting is uh, that was right before we moved into this building then. And so did you come the first few Sundays at Taylor? Do you remember that? Yeah. So awesome. Great, uh, great time to think of that, of that connection to see your boys grow up here at TCC. Um, so good. So good. I, I don't know about you, but when I said to them, I said, you know, it's been, what, three or four years? I should have known. COVID was like three or four years ago. And I just have, like, like there's been like years from my memory that have just been erased. And, and I always got to think, oh, no, that was like pre-2020. And, uh, and so here we are. Well, have you ever heard of the Wicked Bible? Oh, some of you have. Awesome. I hadn't, and, and at least I don't think I had. Maybe I had, and I've since forgotten, but I was meeting with a friend, Randy, this week, and I was talk, telling him about my subject today, and he says, oh, the Wicked Bible. I'm like, the Wicked Bible? You see, um, it's also referred to, if you look it up, the Adulterous Bible or the Sinner's Bible. It was actually published in 1631, and it was meant to be a reprint of the King James Version. Now, it was nicknamed the Wicked Bible because it had an egregious error in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. Can you imagine what it was? The word not was left out of the seventh commandment. So instead of thou shalt not commit adultery, it said thou shalt commit adultery. Now, it's a very interesting story. If you delve into the history of it, I won't bore you <laughs> too much further. Look it up for yourself. But, but the publishers, they got, like, fined that, an amount that equaled, like, a lifetime wages, basically. It was, it was insane. And then they lost their printing license and everything. It was such an egregious mistake that they were punished for it. There's actually about 15 copies still in museums and libraries around the world. And then there are some personal ones. So if you actually have a copy of the Wicked Bible, um, you might be uh, glad to know that one sold at an auction in 2018 for $60,000. So um, hang on to that. Don't bring it to church um, or don't leave it behind. Well, we've been in, in this series now on the Ten Commandments, and we're moving fairly quickly week after week. We've called it The Way. 
And we've been highlighting the fact that the law was given for our sake and the sake of the community of God's people. It was given not to restrict us or to rob us of the joy of living. In fact, far from it. It was given for our freedom, for our protection, for our good. Because we need to understand that God created us. He loves us. He sent his son to die for us. And he knows how his creation is supposed to work. He designed us, male and female, man and woman, and he laid out for us a way to live so that we flourish. Humanity is designed to flourish when we live God's way. Now, unfortunately, because of the fall, we all have a natural tendency to to push back, to question, is this really the way we should live? Did God really say? And we live in a culture that has by and large, turned its back on God. And instead of going with what the Maker has instructed, we go our own way. We do our own thing. You know, you do you. I know that this is a, a difficult subject. And, uh, and so I want to just make a couple of what I might just call some general pastoral observations before we, before we dive in. I thought of calling them disclaimers. They're not really disclaimers. Um, but maybe in some ways, they're just a way and a plea in a sense. Um, first thing I want to say is that some people are uncomfortable hearing a message about what we might consider taboo subjects. I get that. I, I, I think if there were, there were certain parts of Song of Songs and maybe even Proverbs that even if I read out loud, I probably would blush a little bit. But this is in the Bible. And our commitment is to preach and teach the Bible. You can't do a series on the Ten Commandments and then only speak to nine of them. You can't skip over those things. And I think we also need to understand that uh, because of the culture we live in, you know, our kids are being educated in the area of sexuality already in grade four. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and there's a certain message and and uh, um, agenda, I might say, that doesn't align with Scripture. And so, where are we going to talk about these things if we don't talk about them at church? I hope you talk about them at home. I hope you study the Scriptures together with your kids and you talk about it. But these are things that we should look at and understand that it's vital. That as followers of Jesus, we have a biblical sexual ethic. The culture we live in is very different on some of these issues, as you know. Perhaps more than any other moral ethic, we need to understand and live by God's pattern and principles when it comes to this area of sexuality. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to be gratuitous about it. I don't want to be flippant about it or anything like that. But I think we should be honest about it and say, this is something that, yes, actually we do need to talk about. Secondly, when it comes to this subject, I know that it's raw and sensitive for some. And if not for you personally, very likely someone close to you. And you've been deeply hurt and wounded and betrayed by your spouse. And so I am wanting to be compassionate and understanding about that. I do understand. This subject hits close to home. I've seen people devastated by this very matter. So please know that my intent is not to add 
to any emotional trauma or pain that you've experienced. But what I would hope that your posture would be that, you know, it's like if teaching on these difficult subjects can help avoid some of, you know, help people avoid some of what I've experienced, then go for it. That you would cheer it on. And secondly, or thirdly, sorry, this addresses the issue of marriages. The covenant of marriage is central to the subject that we're looking at today. And But by Jesus' teaching on adultery, he really expands it to include everyone. So we're not just talking to married couples this morning. But I do want to say a word to those of you who are married. And while this isn't a message on marriage specifically, I want to take the opportunity to plead with those of you who are struggling and maybe you know full well that your marriage is in trouble. You know, when I do any premarital counseling, sometimes even at the marriage ceremony, I remind the couples, marriage is hard work. And we need to fight for our marriages. We need to nurture them. We need to be intentional about it. We need to guard it at all costs. And I think I can safely say this now, and I don't say this as a pat on the back, but after 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've seen way too many marriages end in divorce when some of those could have been avoided. And what seems to be a common pattern is not getting help to address issues soon enough. And it's just a recurring theme over and over and over again. And sometimes I just want to scream, honestly. Because typically when somebody wants to meet with me, it's like, it's over. It's like, what? So can I just invite you? Talk to us. Don't wait. If your spouse has said, well, let's do counseling and you don't get on it, get on it. Let's walk it out. Be honest. Because honestly, this relationship that we're talking about this morning is so intimate and so sensitive, and it has the potential to bring some of the greatest joy to our lives. But as we probably all know too well, it can also bring some of the greatest pain and difficulty. So don't wait. Do what you need to do. So fight for your marriages. Okay? So buckle up, let's go. We do need to talk about this matter of marriage just a little bit this morning. Because it wouldn't make sense if it wasn't in the context of marriage. And so we need to define marriage first of all. You see, marriage wasn't someone's good idea one day. It didn't just happen by accident. It's woven into the very fabric of creation itself. Marriage is a purposeful, essential element of creation. In short, marriage is God's idea. It's God's plan. Marriage is considered one of the four, what theologians call, creation ordinances, which are the commands given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. And so in Genesis 1, in the very beginning, verses 27 and 28, we read this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. 
And because they did, you and I exist today. And we exist because of biology, because of human physiology, because of science, because that's how God created us. And anyone who has ever given birth or held a newborn baby, they know exactly what an incredible miracle procreation is. So sex is God's idea. And he fully knew the power and the potential of it. He knew the emotional element of it. He knew the spiritual element of it. In that, in the act of intercourse, it unites body and soul. It's not just casual sex. It's so much more than that. In fact, one writer referred to sex within the context of marriage as covenant cement. I like that. Like just the glue that holds that relationship together sometimes. And then after creating man and woman, he says in Genesis 2 verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So now they've started a new family. They've left mom and dad. And so moms and dads, uh, we're going through this right now. You got to learn to like let go, right? And let them be. They're a new family. You see, God's intention from the very beginning is that marriage would be a covenant relationship between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. It's the way to become one. And marriage is the creation of this inseparable union between husband and wife. Unless we think this is just an Old Testament concept, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus quotes Genesis 1 and 2, and then adds in verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, it's important for us to understand what is meant by one flesh. It literally means that two people become one person. So to hurt one's partner ultimately then means to hurt oneself. Now, marriage, there's lots that could be said. Uh, There's so much material that ended up on the cutting room floor this week, but I can describe it this way, as a loving, lasting, binding, solemn, exclusive covenant of companionship. And that is why in a Christian marriage ceremony, a vital part is the mutual sharing of vows. The vows express the covenant that the couple is entering into. And these vows are expressed before God and witnesses and typically end with, until death do us part. And so it should never be entered into lightly. And that is why faithfulness is absolutely vital in marriage and essential to its well-being. You see, ultimately in making vows, you are committing yourself to keeping them faithful and being faithful to keep them. It's also why trust is so huge in marriage. Because when you enter into the covenant of marriage, you are agreeing and you're committing yourself to being faithful to that other person. And in order for marriage to work as God intended, both parties must give themselves wholly to each other and to no one else. Now that's God's design. God's plan, his purpose, his ideal for marriage. But the reality is that marriage is this one flesh union of two broken people. 
Two people who are all too capable of sinning and thereby hurting and at times causing irreparable harm. Because unfaithfulness breaks trust. And so this unfaithfulness is what the seventh commandment is speaking to when it says, you shall not commit adultery. Which leads me then to the definition of adultery. What is adultery? Well, straightforwardly and simply, it's the voluntarily, voluntary sexual activity between a married person and someone other than his or her spouse. I think that's pretty clear. Because in doing so, if they engage in that act, they are ultimately being unfaithful to the one flesh covenant that they've made with their spouses. And that the seventh commandment speaks very specifically to the physical aspect of this act. The sexual intimacy. There is another part to this. This is the, the mental aspect. And Jesus speaks to that. And I'm going to come to that in just a little bit. But I think we also would remiss if we didn't talk about the emotional intimacy that often happens which often is just the gateway that leads to more. And so if we start to conceive or we start to share something with the member of an opposite sex other than our spouse, where we're withholding that from our spouse, but we're sharing that with others, we are walking a very, very thin line. Now, throughout church history... Catechisms have been used as a teaching tool to instruct Christians. A catechism is a summary of the principles of Christian doctrine in the form of questions and answers. And some of you maybe actually went through some kind of process where you went to maybe a weekly Saturday school where you learned the catechism. Now, catechisms really aren't part of our Baptist heritage. They probably should be. But there are some common catechisms like the Heidelberg Catechism. It was developed in the 1500s, 1563 in fact, and the Westminster which has both a larger and shorter version from 1647. And in the shorter version, question 71 asks, what does the seventh commandment require? And the answer is this. The seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity or their purity in heart, speech, and behavior. Question 72 then asks, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment? And the answer is the seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. Now, a number of years ago, the late Tim Keller um, and his church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, they published the New City Catechism, 52 Questions and Answers for Our Hearts and Minds. And you can know why they put it into 52. And the intent was that as a church, they would learn uh, one of the, uh, they'd go through one question and answer every week for, for a year. And the answer it provides regarding the seventh commandment is this, and it puts it in a little broader and maybe a little more contemporary language. It says this, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, 
avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, and whatever might lead to them. And I think that's a good summary, and it seems pretty comprehensive and for good reason. Because we can't talk about this subject without looking at what Jesus taught about the subject. And Jesus expanded and intensified the definition of adultery in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28, which was also read for us. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus is saying that it is no longer the physical act But the line is crossed whenever a man lusts for another woman. And by lust, I mean desire. A desire to have, to possess, to take for yourself. The desire to use the other for one's own self-gratification. Daryl Johnson, in his excellent book on the Ten Commandments, That You May Live, subtitled, How the Ten Commandments Lead to Human Freedom, Translates Jesus' words literally, whoever keeps on looking at a woman in order to lust after her. That's what he's saying. And then he adds, Jesus is not speaking about the appreciative glance at a beautiful person. Rather, Jesus is speaking about the willful, sustained stare and the look which goes beyond appreciative to the desire to possess. And then he quotes F. Dale Bruner. Looking at a beautiful person is a drive given in creation. Staring or leering is a drive given in the fall from creation. So I think that distinction is important. But Jesus then, in the following verses, verses 29 and 30, he talks about how ruthless we should be in avoiding anything and everything that would actually cause us to lust. And he says, if your right hand, sorry, your right eye causes you to stumble gouge it out and throw it away. It's like, whoa, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Now, probably the most infamous and tragic liaison in the Bible is found in Second Samuel chapter 11, story of David and Bathsheba. I was going to read it, but let me just touch on it a little bit. If you're familiar with that account as it unfolds, the first mistake that King David made, and it's very clear, is that he should have been off leading the war. He should have been leading the charge. Instead, he decides to take it easy, and he stays home. That's his first mistake. So he's not doing what he should be doing as king. Secondly, talks about he goes up on the roof. And what does he see when he's on the roof? He looks over and there he sees a beautiful woman bathing. We don't have to use our imagination very far to know exactly what's going on, right? But I don't think it's just a look and then gets off the roof. He starts to think about this, pushes it along a little further. He sends somebody to find out who she is finds out that she is another man's wife. He makes another mistake. He chooses to ignore that. So we know how it ends. And it just unravels, and you're like, that's in the Bible? Yeah, read it, Second Samuel 11. Because 
He then tries to cover up what he does because ultimately Bathsheba gets pregnant, tries to cover it up, brings, his, brings her husband who is in battle, brings, her home, brings him home, tries to send him to the front line so he'll get, get killed. He tries to be deceptive about it. He starts lying and covering up and he's trying to cover his sin. And ultimately, the prophet Nathan comes, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it was that long, sustained stare, allowing a fantasy to conceive in his mind, and him as king having the authority to use and abuse a woman like that. So the bottom line, friends, God says, don't do it. Jesus says, you know what, it starts in the heart. It's not just the act itself, but the unrestrained desire and thoughts of having that which isn't ours to have. This is the way of faithfulness. So how do we live the way of faithfulness? I want to speak to those of you who are single or married, whether you're youth, maybe especially if you're youth, or maybe even if you're older. Number one, Commit to ruthlessly avoiding all sexual immorality. You see, Jesus used some really strong and graphic metaphors, didn't he? Your eyes is the problem? (laughs) Then gouge it out. Your hand's a problem? Then cut it off. Of course, we know this is literal. He's intentionally using hyperbole. He's exaggerating for effect. But what he is saying is that we should do whatever it takes to avoid sin because there are consequences to our actions. And in the situations of adultery, we know that the consequences are devastating. Trust has been betrayed. It's almost impossible to recover. Families are destroyed. In some situations, jobs are lost. The devastating impact is so, so tragic. So ruthlessly avoid it. If you need to run, run. Remember Joseph being pursued by Potiphar's wife? He wouldn't even be in her presence until one day she caught him, but he still ran, and you know how that went in his life. Maybe you need to just remove yourself physically from somewhere. Maybe you even have to go so far as to quit your job. Or maybe you need to remove certain apps or websites that you frequent. And the point is this, is that we need to be on our guard at the kind of, what one writer talks about, temptation traps. Where we get trapped and caught up in this. And instead of that, we pursue personal purity that we're very aware of what we do and what we see and what we watch and what we say and where we go. Now, there are many other verses in the Bible that speak to this issue of sexual purity, but I'll leave you with Colossians 3, verse 5. There, Paul writes, put to death. Again, that's a pretty strong term, but he says, therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So starve it out. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So friends, that's where faithfulness starts. When we just say, we will avoid this. We will, as as Paul says, flee the evil desires of youth. 
Secondly, then, practice the presence of God. Brother Lawrence in the late 1600s, a lay monk who understood the holiness available in the mundane. And he talks about how when he would wash dishes, he would be aware of God's presence. You see, we have a heavenly Father who knows us, who searches our thoughts, who knows, the Bible says, when we sit and when we rise, who knows what we're doing and where we're going. Just read Psalm 139 on your own this afternoon and have an appreciation that God is with us, that the Holy Spirit resides within us. And when we pay attention to his presence, he convicts us. And when we choose to walk with Jesus, we can assume then that he's watching us. And if we had the conviction that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is always present, we'd have the conviction to run, to flee, to remove ourselves from situations, and to avoid it. And we would do whatever we had to do to stay faithful to him and to our spouses. Thirdly, Live then with biblical convictions. Go ahead and study all the verses about sexual immorality. And live with the conviction that God in his word designed a way for us to flourish. Not to enslave us, not to rob us, not to be, as some would say, this cosmic killjoy that he doesn't want to have any fun. But he puts boundaries around it. He builds a fence and says, Within this context. And so we handle this beautiful gift with care. You see, God's good purpose and plan reserves sex for the context of marriage, and there's good reason for that. And if we lived with that kind of conviction, we would avoid ourselves a world of hurt. Ephesians 5.3, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And so we might memorize a verse like that, not even a hint of sexual immorality. Memorize it. Other verses, another one, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. He says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in your heart that I might not sin against you. Fourthly, walk in the company of others. This is super important. Because I believe one of the enemy's greatest tools in this area is to keep us isolated, separated, and alone from one another. That we have our own little secret. And so when we isolate, we become vulnerable. And so I want to suggest to you is find somebody. Get in a triad. Be honest about the temptations that you're facing. Ask for help, for prayer, for accountability. Say, this is an area that I'm struggling in. That's okay. Chances are, people around you are like, I understand. I get it. But let's walk in the company of others. And lastly, live a life of confession and repentance. You see, walking with Jesus is living this life of faith 
that ultimately involves living in continual repentance. Always seeking to bring our lives in alignment with God's word. You see, if we're honest with ourselves and others, we will absolutely know when we are getting into the danger zone. And then we have a choice to make then, don't we? Do we excuse or justify our behavior? Or do we turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin? We just went through a study in John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And you may remember this verse from chapter 1 and verse 9 of 1st John. He says, if we confess our sins, listen, Listen, this is important. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. You see, there is grace and there's mercy and there's forgiveness of sin. Adultery, sexual sin is not unforgivable. But we do need to be like that prodigal son who acknowledged that his life was a mess because he had chosen to live life his own way. I love the line in there. When he came to his senses, he chose to return. And he found the father was waiting and he ran and embraced him. I shared a little bit about the story of David and Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan had gone to David and called him on what he had done, called him out on it. And he acknowledged his sin. And this is David's words in acknowledgement of the wrong that he had done. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely, he says, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, that's the way that we come to Jesus. We say, cleanse us. Have mercy on us. Sustain us. Grant me a willing spirit. In the hymn, as well with my soul, there's something about the third verse that always arrests my own spirit. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, 
but the whole. Is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And so we come to the table today, acknowledging that our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And we give thanks for his forgiveness. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and join me here at the front. I want to just give you a time to just to reflect on maybe what you've heard. Maybe the Spirit is churning something inside. And I want to encourage you that our attention should be drawn to the work that Jesus did on the cross. To know that because Jesus died, we have the forgiveness of sins. That when we look at the Ten Commandments, and we've said this before, it's, it's not like a ladder that we kind of climb up or somehow earn our way to God's love. He already loves us. He sent His Son as a way of salvation. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I just ask that we would do what the Scriptures say, that we would examine ourselves. We'd say, look at, am I, am I a follower of Jesus? And if you're here this morning and you're just trying to discover what this means and you're a little rattled maybe even right now because you heard this message, it's like, whoa, what's that all about? And you're trying to sort that all out. That's okay. And in those situations, we say that you shouldn't participate in this because there's no personal you know, importance to you. But for those of you who know Jesus, you know what he's done. And when we hear a message like this, it shouldn't make us, you know, feel horrible about ourselves or beat ourselves up, but it should turn our attention to a great and gracious God that loves us and forgives us. So for the last number of months when we've had communion, we've invited you to to come forward and to receive these elements. And so each of the sections here have a table in front of them. Come by and come first row by row. I always say kind of like when you're getting off an airplane, let the row ahead of you go and just kind of do it somewhat orderly. If you're not taking communion today, you might need to just step aside and let people go by and then just take your seat again and there'll be some movement and that's okay. Those of you that are way at the back and maybe even in the back of these center sections, you'll probably find that the sides will be clearer sooner than the middle will be. And so go to the shortest line is what I would say. Come by and pick up the elements. You can either take one of the prepackaged cups with the piece of bread on top, or you can take an individual piece of bread and cup and pick them up and return to your seat. Hold on to them until we come back together and we can participate together. And so this is just a time when you're standing in line or whether you're seated that you can reflect, that you can pray, that you can confess, that you can sing and sing along with the worship team if you like. But let me just pray and then I'm going to invite you to come. Father, we do want to thank you today for your great grace and your mercy. Lord, we know that I know, you know, this is, a, this is a tough subject. But it's a necessary one. It's in your word. 
And we too often have seen the carnage that has resulted from the breaking of this commandment. The emotional pain that comes when we engage in these activities outside of the way that you've prescribed it. Father, I pray that you would give every young person here, every single person here, the courage to live a life of purity. To say, I will reserve this. If it is God's will that when I am married, that is the safe and right place. But Father, we know that this is such an area that has a grip on many. We know the, how rampant pornography is. We know how easily accessible it is to us. And so I pray, Father, that we would choose today to live a life of faithfulness. And we would think through the things that we talked about this morning, that we would ruthlessly avoid those things. That we'd be aware of your presence with us. And we'd walk this out with others. But Lord, where we stumble and fall, that we would be quick to turn back to you. Because you come with open arms and you meet us because of your great love. And so, Lord, speak to each of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.